Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. In a sudden and somewhat shocking announcement, the 29th French Film Festival will not take place this year. The only explanation I've been able to get from the founder is due to unexpected circumstances. Robert Altman, the great filmmaker, was directing his first Broadway show. So I was the usher. And Bob came in that night with Paul Newman. And I was showing them to their seats. And he said, are you an actress? And I went, why, yes, I am. He said, can you come to my apartment tomorrow? I want to read Cher for a new play I'm thinking of doing. Went to his apartment the next day. It was me and Cher and Robert Altman. And she read all of the parts. And then she left. He said, what do you think? And I went, well, she was great in all of them, but she sounded all the same. He said, exactly. That was Richmond native Caroline Aaron talking about auditioning for her first Broadway show, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, for Robert Altman. Richmond native Caroline Aaron is best known for her role as Shirley Maisel in Amazon's primetime award-winning series, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, which enters its fourth and final season on April 15th. Before her appearance as the featured speaker at the Adolph Adams JCC Forum, I had a chance to catch up with her, and of course we talked about Mrs. Maisel, but also about her extensive stage and screen career with directors like Robert Altman, Mike Nichols, and Woody Allen. Sifter Review of the Week The Last of Us on HBO I never played the video game that inspired this series, or any other game for that matter, so I'm approaching it strictly as a story about a man, Pedro Pascal, who's escorting a team, Bella Ramsey, most familiar as Lyanna on Game of Thrones. In a typical apocalyptic angle, she seems to be immune to the fungus that's turning most of the population into zombies, so he must get her to a place where they can create a vaccine. These creatures are different from the typical Walking Dead variety in origin, but they still cause bloody mayhem. Surprisingly, they take a back seat in some of the episodes. Sure, the specter of their surprise appearance is always looming, but there are long periods where they don't appear. The focus is more on the bond between the duo and their survival, and in some side trips, other relationships. Pascal maintains steely determination while offering glimpses of vulnerability, and Ramsey charmingly embodies a spunky teen. If you look past the game's influence and the zombies, this is a compelling look at survival and human connection. I gave it four out of five stars. So, Caroline Aaron, welcome to Sifter. We're going to talk about your incredible theater, movie, and TV career in detail, but I just have to start, and I'm sure you've heard it before, episode one, season four on The Wonder Wheel. That scene was spectacular. Some of the best TV I've ever seen, wasn't it? I agree. I agree. I agree. How did that happen? That was insane. I mean, y'all weren't really on the Wonder Wheel, of course. No, but it took almost the whole season to get right. Um, What they did, which was quite extraordinary, they were waiting until it was warm weather for us to actually go to Coney Island. And the fourth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was a pandemic season. So they had to scramble and reorient everything they thought they were going to do. So they built the Wonder Wheel car on a soundstage, an exact replica. Each one of us got in the car and did the whole scene with uh, the other actors distributed on big scaffoldings. Oh, wow. So that it would mimic what it would be like to be there. Then they took like little footprints and Amy created the choreography for the entire scene. And that was in the winter. And we rehearsed and we rehearsed and we rehearsed because of our creator, and brilliant director-writer Amy Sherman Palandino really prefers to do one shot, to not do any cuts, 
any close-ups, just like it would be in life. But there was a lot of traffic in that Coney Island scene of us approaching the Wonder Wheel, getting our popsicles, dealing with the kids, all these characters. I think we spent a whole day just rehearsing the choreography. Cut to about five months later when it's kind of warm. We all go out to Coney Island, which is still not opened up because of the pandemic. So let me just say one of the great thrills of that scene was being able to go to Coney Island and be the only ones there. (laughs) It was really fun. And that Wonder Wheel is still there. And I agree with you. It was really quite spectacular. And I understand you had a treat for the first time out there then. I can't believe that. I'd never had those, um, oh, I can't even <laughs> You don't even know, yeah, funnel know. cake. You obviously haven't lived in the South in a while, have you? <laughs> no, but I didn't have funnel cakes growing up. I didn't know what a funnel cake was. And boy, let me just say, it's just a delicious mouthful of sugar and fat. Couldn't be better. Yeah, yeah, I love them too. That's great. Obviously, you were raised in Richmond. When did you discover the acting bug and how did you get into theater? Well, you know, my mother always blamed our summer camp. (laughs) We had a choice between being in a bunk show or climbing a mountain. So there you go. Obviously. (laughs) Sort of no choice is there. Right. You know, my mother was always very culturally oriented. I think she was on the board of the Virginia Museum Theater. We had season tickets every year. And because I fell in love with, you know, the theater from being at summer camp, we went to summer camp in Maine. Um, My father died when I was a child. And so my mother was widowed with three young kids and she sent us to summer camp with cousins. And from my perspective then, very elaborate productions. I remember my sister singing Climb Every Mountain and being a nun. (laughs) Surprise guest drop in. Hi, sweetheart. I can't believe it's you. Footnote. Connie Perez Dirks is a surprise drop in, but since she was on vacation in Mexico, the connection was kind of funky, but we made it work. Yeah. Fill us in on how you two know each other. I don't remember a time that we didn't know each other. Right. Before we moved to Richmond when I was six, I think our parents might, you know, may have somehow, maybe through the synagogue, through Sunday school at first. What do you think, Caroline? And we went to school together. We were in school. I mean, I started in second grade at Chuckahoe Elementary. Right. And we went all the way through school together. And we had a sad bond, too, in that my father died. And not too long after that, Connie's father died. So we were the only two young girls. Your father died when you were 11. Right. We knew each other from second grade on. That's right. So come on, Connie. We want some of the good stories about the teen years. (laughs) Oh, yes. We always got in trouble. I don't know if you remember that, Caroline, but... I do. I do remember a couple of funny things that happened. One time we went to downtown Richmond. That was when Miller and Rhodes and Tallheimers were still in existence. And we took the bus down and somehow either lost our money or spent all our money and we had to walk home (laughs) from downtown. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I remember being there and running out of money. And how long was that walk back home? Hours. Hours. Hours and hours. <laughs> wow. You got another good story before we let you get back to your vacation? One more, and that's what, I don't know if Caroline remembers, we walked up to some shopping center. It's right oh. on the corner of Patterson Avenue and Parham Road. And we didn't want to walk home, so we decided to hitchhike. This old guy in an old car stopped and we decided we didn't want to get in and the next day of course somebody who knew us told our mothers so we got in trouble for that too for hitchhiking i don't remember that yeah really 
Y'all were yeah. some wild girls. We were. We were pretty reckless, but we had a great time. We never got arrested or anything. That's good. That's good. We were, when we were in, in um, ninth grade, which would have been our confirmation class, pre-confirmation, Pre, we had to yeah. go on Saturdays for confirmation class, and then we were supposed to stay for services. But we would often skip out and go to the drugstore down the street. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yep, um, I do remember. I went to school. I was not a very good student, and I didn't really study. And, and y'all were at, J- at Freeman, right? Freeman High School. Went to Douglas Freeman, Tucko yeah. Elementary, Tucko Junior High, and then Douglas South Hall Freeman. There you go. Those were our schools. Absolutely. Well, well Connie, want to thank you for calling in on your vacation from right. Mexico for a great surprise. Well, I, I wouldn't have missed it. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be in Richmond next week. I know. You know, when you're finished traveling, we, we can try to catch up, and I can actually hear you better. <laughs> you know, that would be wonderful. Unfortunately, yeah, it's, I love being a part of this. You know, have fun in Richmond, and hopefully, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much, Connie. Have fun in right, Mexico. Bye bye. Well, that wasn't exactly how I planned it, but at least it worked, and you got to hear from Connie. So, oh my God, and it's been a long, long time. That's a pretty spectacular. Well, now that we had that lovely break from your past and the old Richmond days, let's move to New York. How did you get rid of your Southern accent? I know. Isn't that so funny? When I was in college, I went to school to major in performing arts. And the first thing they did was said, you have to lose that accent, young lady. <laughs> okay. And when, my, when I met my husband and he came to Richmond, he just could not believe it. It's a Southern accent, but it's not, you know, on stage when people do Southern accents and they're not Southern Oh, yes. Oh, right. Can't you always tell? Oh, it's it drives me crazy. Yeah, me too. And it's not always a drawl. It can be. But Richmond's accent is not of drawlers. And I understand when you finally did go to New York, you had your first real decent bagel. I did. Have you got a decent bagel in Richmond now? Oh, of course not. Well, I don't know. There's some of these young bakers who have these bagels and you have to wait outside in a line for, you know, an hour just to get a damn bagel. So I haven't really been to any of them yet. Oh, but you do that, but yes. yeah. you know, every time we go to New York, of course, I'm always going to S a bagel. I got to get a good bagel. You have to get your good bagels, of course. Obviously, you started out in theater and your first play was pretty impressive. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Footnote. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean was a Broadway comedy that became a movie, both directed by Robert Altman and starring Cher, as you heard, Sandy Dennis and Karen Black. What was it like to suddenly be in New York and you're on Broadway? Oh, it was so thrilling and it happened sort of by accident. I was an usher. In those days, if you would usher for a play, then you could get to see it for free. Right. And Robert Altman, the great filmmaker, was directing his first Broadway show, but he had produced an off-Broadway show by a writer named Frank South. So I was the usher. And Bob came in that night, I think, with Paul Newman, if I remember correctly. And I was showing them to their seats and he said, are you an actress? And I went, why, yes, I am. Of course. (laughs) Why, yes, I am. It's sort of showing. He said, can you come to my apartment tomorrow? I want to read Cher for a new play I'm thinking of doing. He had a script sent over to my apartment. Wow. Went to his apartment the next day. It was me and Cher and Robert Altman. And she read all of the parts. And then she left. He said, what do you think? And I went, well, she's Cher. You know, she she sounded like Cher in all the parts. You know, when I was studying acting men and it was supposed to be the art of transformation. And I didn't think that she 
changed appropriately from one character to another. And I said, well, she was great in all of them, but she sounded all the same. He said, exactly. And then he said, do you want to do it too? That's how I made my Broadway debut. Wow. When so he I, said do it, you mean read the whole play or just read your part? I didn't even have a part. He made me understudy. I understudied Karen Black, who was sick one night. And Robert Altman came to my dressing room and said, I know this is your Broadway debut, but I just want to tell you, don't come in on a horse. Just come in when it's time for you to enter. Oh. I, okay. Because they'd been running the play for months. You know, for me, it was, you know, like my wedding or something. I was right. so big deal. Off. Very big deal. And because they needed members of the Jimmy Dean fan club, the girls who understudied, it was Cher, Sandy Dennis, and Karen Black, the three leads in the play. We were all members of the Jimmy Dean fan club. So we got to go on stage, but we didn't have anything to say. So that's how I made my Broadway debut. And it was very thrilling. It was. And then you went to do the movie. So that's a totally different world. So, so different. You know, Robert Altman loved Gamble. So the place that they put us up was next to a racetrack <laughs> in Arizona. So wow. we to his gambling. Yes, it was really quite exciting. Another major director who figured prominently in your career was Mike Nichols, of course. Why don't you tell that great story of how you got cast in his first show? I was studying when I first came to New York. Um, you had to audition, and I was lucky enough to get into Uta Hagen's masterclass, and she wrote that book, Respect for Acting, which is still the Bible of young actors today. Footnote. Uta Hagen is considered one of the 20th century's greatest actors. She also became an influential author and teacher. You know, it's funny, when I was in high school, everybody else was listening to rock and roll, and I was listening to rock and roll too, but I had found a full album, it was four or five records, of Uta Hagen and Robert Grizzard doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. Yes. And I listened to that like, do you have that too? I have the same thing. I love, I called them story records. And she created a master class where she said there would be a guest teacher every week. Mike Nichols was our guest teacher and I did a scene. Footnote. Mike Nichols is an accomplished director whose plays include dozens of hits, as well as movies like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Silkwood, Working Girl, and Primary Colors. And then he called me in to audition for Heartburn. Footnote. Heartburn was a 1986 movie written by Nora Ephron and starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. I did a small part in that, one of the very first films I did. And then he asked me if I wanted to understudy Marlo Thomas on Broadway in a new comedy he was doing. And in those days, or certainly for Mike, the understudies were there from the very first day. Now they don't do that anymore because it's too expensive, but you would be there from the first day. So I got a master class in watching him put together a brand new production that, wow, wow. you know, became a huge hit and that lasted for about a year. And I'm still very good friends with that cast. Cool. Now, that's interesting that you understudy for Marlo Thomas, because when I think of your voice and her voice, you both have that rich, deep, yes. I shouldn't say smoker's voice, but you both have that wonderful, rich voice. It's true. And um, it was really very exciting. And then... And you, you went know, on to teach there at some point, too, didn't you? I, do, I teach at HB Studios. Footnote. HB Studios is an abbreviation for the legendary Herbert Berghoff Studio in New York City. Yes, I do. I teach with Uda's old room, wow. which is really quite amazing. And that's, that studio is still going strong and has a huge international component. And do you enjoy that? Is that fun to teach? I do enjoy it. Let me just say, out of all the things I do, God bless teachers. 
there is nothing more exhausting than teaching. Absolutely. I'd like come home from teaching and I'd be like, just laid out. I was so tired. <laughs> I just could not believe how tiring it is. Right, right. I started teaching when I was living in Los Angeles at a film school. And I was like, oh my God, this is so tiring. How do teachers do it? I have to do a shout out to my daughter. She's a teacher of four-year-olds, if you can imagine that. Oh my, when my daughter was in nursery school, she was four. Every time I would pick her up, I would like say to the teachers, they had like 18 three-year-olds or four-year-olds. And I yeah. think, how do they get through the day? I don't know. So obviously you went on to work with Mike Nichols and Working Girls in Primary Colors. And then the other major director you obviously worked with was Woody Allen in a bunch of films. Now, how did you get started with him? The casting director for Mike Nichols was also the casting director for Woody Allen, a wonderful woman named Juliette Taylor. And she had been at my audition for Heartburn. And Woody is truly one of the shyest people I've ever met. And he feels the same way about strangers, I think, that snakes do, you know, when they lose. <laughs> The snake is more scared of you than you are of it. Well, right. You know, actors are so scared of giants like Woody, but I think Woody's more scared of actors than, than we are of him. And uh, he never auditioned people at the beginning of his career because he wants everything to be so authentic, lifelike, that he would either know who actors were or just invite them into his process. And when he was doing Crimes and Misdemeanors, Julia Taylor said, I want you to see this actress. You should have her read. But Woody never gives out the script. So what they did was they sent me over these pages and they black out the other person's lines. Wow. And I'm sort of looking at it like it's hieroglyphics. And I'm going to go audition for the great Woody Allen. And I auditioned. I'm reading with the casting director. And in the audition, as ended up in the movie, there's a kiss between me and this date. The whole time I'm reading, I'm going, do I kiss Juliette Taylor or do I not? <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's always at the back of my mind. Right. He was in the dark. I could hardly see him. And um, I read and then I left. There was no chit chat, no, you know, sort of like cocktail hour before you actually do it. And I left and then I got a call that he wanted to see me again. That was like a month later. And I went back in and I knew by then that I would be playing his sister, but I hadn't actually met him formally when I went back in and I stood up and he stood up and I realized I was taller than he was. Oh, did you scrunch down? <laughs> yes, I went, oh no. But as I was leaving, Juliet Taylor came out and said, we don't want to torture you anymore. Woody would like you to do this part. So that was pretty exciting. And then once he knows you, I did several movies for him. And then 10 years later, out of the blue, I got a call that he wanted me to do his Broadway show, which I did. Footnote. The Woody Allen Broadway show that she was in is titled Relatively Speaking. I don't know if it's like this anymore with auteur directors, but they start to choose sort of like a team of people that they feel comfortable working with and they don't have to do getting to know you. Sure. Now, what is different? Because I know that you've talked about the difference between working with Woody Allen in a movie and working with him on stage. Oh, my gosh. It was so different. At least in my experience, other people may have had different experiences, but in my experience, they'll say to you right away, say whatever you want. And I think to myself, say whatever I want. There's one time I would never want to change a comma. It's in something written by Woody Allen, but he doesn't like artifice. So he wants you to make it comfortable in your mouth. And he's very loose about how it goes. The very first day of this play we did, what he said to the cast, this is really a collection of jokes. It's not really a play. It'll be your job to convince the audience that it is. Uh, John Turturro directed it, and then Woody came back after we had our first run-through, and then he 
sort of tore it up and changed everything. He kept <laughs> rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it, which he didn't do during filmmaking. And he would come and give us notes and he wanted it so precise because it was a comedy, obviously. And he said his goal for this particular play was he wanted to see if he could get a laugh on every line. Wow. And, you know, he's such a genius, but he doesn't feel secure about any of his other gifts. But the one thing he does feel secure about is that he knows the architecture of a joke. And so if any of the actors were off or their timing was off, when he would give us notes, come in faster, do it this way, do it that way, in order for him to see if it would land. So however he heard it in his head was something that he wanted you to match on stage. So he was very hands-on during the play and very hands-off. He taught me a great lesson. There was a line in Crimes and Misdemeanors that he wrote on the spot. I was having a scene with him. We were catching up with each other. My line to him was, how are you? And he wrote this line on the spot. He said, well, I'm sort of lonely. The last time I was inside a woman was when I visited the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic Woody Allen. So Woody, right? And so all the people who were like the extras and stuff who were a part of this scene, Everybody just sort of stopped, like the waiters stopped moving. People who had drinks on the way to their mouth froze in midair. Right. And said, no, 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 no. Everybody has to keep behaving. He said, if they don't, it will feel like the screenwriter walked onto the screen. And it's the exact opposite in a play. If you have a one-liner and people are moving, you'll kill the joke. If you have a one-liner in a movie and everybody stops, you'll kill the joke. Right. right. Those are just two different mediums that he knows so incredibly well. So how is it different working with those two great directors, Mike Nichols and Woody Allen? I would have, I would assume there's a lot of difference because they seem like very different. Very, very different. You know, Mike directed by anecdote. As people used to say about him, he knew everything about the human condition. He was very interested in the psychology of people. And he would always say his subject was what takes place between men and women. He was very fascinated by that combination. Well, so Mike would tell incredible stories. He was a great rock on tour. And you would sort of interpret how to translate those stories into whatever part you were doing. And when I was understudying Marlo Thomas, he told this incredible story to her, which of course I took on for when I actually got to do the part. There was a scene at the beginning of the second act where a great painter, like a Chagall type painter, had painted a portrait of her mother and it was hanging over the couch in her Upper East Side apartment. And the lines were just, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's my mother. And Marla was very moved by that, full of, you know, emotion and tears. And Mike said to her, that is a perfectly legitimate response, except we're in a comedy. <laughs> and he said, and in a comedy, what we laugh at is misfortune. Like the very first joke he used to say to us was the guy slipping on the banana peel. That's what came to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And then he told this story about that his brother is a doctor and he said, you know, I have a brother and he's a very well-regarded doctor, but he's always been Mike Nichols' brother. But I go to sleep at night in fear that he will discover the cure for cancer and <laughs> be his brother. <laughs> great. And great. so he said to Marlo, the other response you can have to seeing your mother immortalized is, oh my God, I can't believe it. She beat me. <laughs> and then we're in a comedy. Right. So instead of being full of emotion and saying, oh my God, I can't believe it. There's a lot of teeth underneath that. And then of course she got the laugh. So that was the genius of Mike in a lot of ways. And I think um, 
the genius of Woody is he was so, so, so economical. He'd give you one word or one line. So let's move over to TV because you have been in practically every TV show out there, some with big roles and some as guest roles and lots of guest appearances. How is that being a stranger coming into a show that's already, you know, already running and stuff? I describe it as being like a transfer student and nobody tells you where the lunchroom is. (laughs) And of course, it depends on the show and the people that are there, but it can be a very challenging situation because on television shows that unlike movies where You do become a family, an instant family, but they last eight weeks. Right. Successful television show can be on the air for years and years. And these people are so bonded to each other. And you come in as sort of the interloper or the guest star, you know, and you're just there for a week. You have to make your way through whatever it is that they already have established. So I always said whenever I was a regular on a TV show, I was going to be a very good hostess to the guest stars. There you go. Always flatter. Flattery never hurts, right? That's right. We now come to the show that is the most memorable right now, and the one that everybody's talking about is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which, of course, we've watched since the first episode in 2017 and love it. And congratulations, y'all got the SAG Outstanding Ensemble and Comedy Series two years in a row. Two years in a row. Yes, we did. That's great. And it is an amazing ensemble. Now, I understand that there was someone who is your inspiration for your character. You know, Southern Jews are not at all like these characters. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say, you know. So the similarity between playing Shirley Maisel and the women that I admired and knew growing up sort of ends with that one thing that they are both Jewish. But my mother's first cousin, who was like a sister to her, was very much like Shirley to me and just died recently. And um, it is that sort of, you know, the mentally delighted, Somebody who cherishes life is so open-hearted and has no boundaries, which is one of the things I love about Shirley. Right. No sense of this is none of your business or you shouldn't interfere with that. Did you really say that? (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. But when I would get the scripts and I would have to say things to Midge like, but why do you want to be a comedian? You're not funny. You know, things like that. Um, <laughs> you were funny because you're not funny. I know funny people. You're not one of them. You know, it just there's a kind of purity and innocence about it. And, um, you know, I thought of her as my aunt, my aunt Nancy, who would say to my son and his girlfriend when she was meeting the girlfriend the first time. So are you going to get married or not? You know, one of those people. Right, right. <laughs> All the blood is draining from my face. Uh-oh. That kind of <laughs> they're thing. saying what everybody's thinking. It's just they're saying it. Exactly. Exactly. That was Richmond native Caroline Aaron, who's best known for her role as Shirley Maisel in Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which enters its fourth and final season on April 15th. She had so many fun stories to tell about the show and other projects, including her one-woman movie, that I'll be continuing the interview on next week's show. Coming soon. In theaters. 65. The writers behind A Quiet Place make their directorial debut in this sci-fi adventure about an astronaut, played by Adam Driver, who lands on Earth 65 million years in the past. Cue the dinosaurs. Scream 6. The ghost-faced killer relocates to New York City, and for the first time in the series, Nev Campbell will not be in it. Champions. Woody Harrelson plays a former basketball coach who's court-ordered to manage a team of players with intellectual disabilities. The Quiet Girl, a reserved girl in 80s rural Ireland, goes to live with foster parents where she blossoms, but... The Magic Flute, 
a young Londoner, travels to the legendary Mozart boarding school in the Alps, where he discovers a fantasy world. It also stars F. Mary Abraham, who ironically played Salieri in the Mozart classic Amadeus. Southern Gospel. A rock star's life changes when he decides to become a preacher in this faith-based drama. TV and streaming. Endless Summer Vacation. Miley Cyrus returns to Disney for this music special with a guest performer, Rufus Wainwright. Jimi Hendrix Electric Church on PBS this Saturday at 10 p.m. features his landmark performance at the Atlanta International Pop Festival. Luther, The Fallen Son, Idris Elba's popular mystery series turned feature film, will now drop on Netflix. School Spirits on Paramount Plus, a teen stuck in the afterlife investigates her own disappearance. Superman and Lois premieres for the third season on The CW. You can always subscribe to this podcast on all the various services. Plus, you can go to tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. This is Jerry Williams. Caroline and I will be back next week. For more Sister, including literally thousands Thousands of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.